Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R.fm. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're talking about the film Mildred Pierce from 1945 with my wonderful guest, Kat Day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. This week, my very special guest is Kat Day, and this is our season two finale, and I promised everyone here kind of a special treat. And one of the really cool things about Kat Day is not only is she like a wonderful human and actor and singer and performer and friend, and like giving the vaccine to people right now, like what's that, like a great volunteer, but also she is the granddaughter of Dennis Day, and that makes you the great niece of Anne Blythe, who is the star of our film today, Mildred Pierce from 1945. So Kat Day, we both watched the movie again. What'd you think? I hadn't watched it in a while. I definitely think it's a little creepy at points with how uh, evil my great aunt is compared to how nice she is. But also just this idea, spoiler, that her she wants to hook up with her mom's husband yeah and uh but I feel like I don't know it's just a very dark ending which is actually not the ending in the book this is true Mildred Pierce it was a book by James M. Kane. it was like a bestseller in 1941 so they make this movie and in the movie they wanted this thriller right they wanted to have kind of a noir whodunit feel. And they said that Vita had to be punished for her crimes in general. So they were like, we're gonna have a murder, we're gonna have Vita do it, and she's gonna go to jail. And yep. that's how we're gonna solve this whole situation. They did the other Mildred Pierce with Kate Winslet like a decade ago. Well, and that one, they didn't have her kill him at the yeah. end. They kept it out. But yeah, it's just like you said, they wanted it thriller, very film noir. The score is very film noir, how yes. it was filmed. And it's funny you say that making, obviously, Havita like have at the end go to jail. I just love her last line of, I'll be fine, mother. Like, yes, she's fine. But I talked to my great aunt the other day. And when I asked her what was like the most challenging part of the movie, and she said it was that scene where she has to shoot Zachary Scott, because she says, even to this day, she's still absolutely terrified of guns. And it was just so really traumatic for her. She just had a really hard time with it. And also she adored Zachary Scott as a human. And so she just said that was her most difficult experience on it. But other than that, she loved that role. 
anytime she got to play a dark sinister character just made her so happy because she ended up being kind of a darling of Hollywood, especially with Mr. Peabody and the Mermaid. You know, she was the ingenue a lot and not necessarily had this dark side. So she said anytime she could be that evil, she just reveled in it. It's so against type. And she was 16. Like that blows. She was 17. 17. I thought she was 16. She, I think when she started the screen test, she was 16. Um, And I asked her, I was like, what was that audition experience? She was so casual about it. Went to the screen test with Joan Crawford. And I said, you had to have been nervous. She goes, oh, absolutely not. I was prepared. And Joan made me feel like an absolute star and just very comfortable. Joan just took me right under her wings. So I just knew I had the part. I just just love her confidence and just obviously talking the world of Joan. I think a lot of people want to know what was Joan like, especially with how with feud. Uh, the Ryan well, mommy dearest for me. Oh, absolutely. That's... And I kind of have this theory of when I was watching it the other night, I kind of wonder if this specific character maybe made Joan hate her children. Like, this is me, we are thinking psychological stuff of like, of how awful Zeta was in this to her. And as a mother, giving her child everything and then to just crumble. I'm wondering if this role just maybe turned a little bit of Joan's mind with her kids. It was just something I was thinking about. That had never occurred to me. Because, like, if you had, like, a t-shirt line, like, the motto of this movie is, like, don't spoil your kids. Exactly. Don't spoil your kids. Don't have your kids be part of your council. They're your children. They are not the boss of you. That's basically, like, Mildred Pierce tagline. So I'd never thought of it that way. But, I mean... It's so hard to say because it's like there are so many varying tales about the abuse that might have occurred or might not have occurred, right? And she was abused growing up. Joan Crawford was. So, like, there's all these levels and layers to it, but I never put the two together that, like, she started adopting kids around the time of this film and that how that might have affected her in some way and raising the kids. That just didn't click in my brain. I mean, you hear stories of actors say that characters stay with them and just... Joan's performance, she won the Oscar for this film. And you look at this and you do sympathize with her. I think a modern audience, you go, oh, stop spoiling your kids. But at the same time, she played it so strongly of she loved her daughter so much. She would give her literally the world. She married a man she didn't love for her daughter. And that idea that not even just the ungratefulness, but that it's never enough and maybe just a hint of that stuck with her of like when she had her kids of I can never give them enough so I'm this was just something I thought about the other night the psychology of it of just how sometimes a character can stay with you and maybe it scarred a little bit of her one of the reasons I picked Mildred Pierce in general um I have to be straight up honest with you and confess I have never seen Mildred Pierce until yesterday (gasps) I'm a classic movie buff I've seen a lot of classic movies Mildred Pierce never made the list because I've noticed for me, I've tended to have a blind spot to Joan Crawford. Like I've had a Joan Crawford aversion a little bit. And I think it's because when I started getting into classic movies, I was about like 13 and I watched the women and she was the bad guy in the women. And um, I, I think AMC started showing Mommy Dearest a lot at that time. 
Mm. So between the women and seeing Mommy Dearest, I was like, ooh, I don't think I like this lady. I don't think I want to watch her movies. I think I'm good. So I've seen like some Joan Crawford, but I definitely have a blind spot with her. She's definitely an actress whose work I have not seen as much as like several other of the big actresses of that age. Um, So I just think that's really interesting, like uncovering that blind spot for me of like, I wonder why I haven't. Oh, because of those two like integral experiences as a middle schooler. I think she does get this stigma of being a villain just in her personal life, which is unfortunate um, because like just hearing from Anne Blythe how wonderful and giving she was on set. I think she does unfortunately get this rap of being villainous. She has very strong features as well and photographs can come off as very villainous and it's so funny you say though that you'll never see Mildred Pierce um, because my great aunt said she goes I think the moment the fan mail stops will be when people don't like that movie because she said that is most of her fan mail is for Mildred Pierce and I didn't know this until I was doing my research it's in the like library of congress is like one of the top movies of historical reference which I find interesting because I'm like the historical reference of this movie but yeah it's just interesting that she my great aunt I mean she's got an insane amount of films she did that she's known for but this was like her big thing because she was also nominated for it as well and she is fantastic in it it's a movie that plays with expectations so beautifully um what I love about this is almost every person you meet you have a different impression of at first than who they actually are Um, And the movie, it starts off kind of a cloudy, unfocused image that gets more clear and more clear as the movie goes on. And um, like Anne Blythe playing against type is fantastic because when you first see her as Vita, you're on her side. She's this beautiful young girl with a flower in her hair and she looks lovely and polished and sweet and you don't think twice about her. Um, I will say I did know what was going to happen because even though I didn't see Mildred Pierce this movie, I did watch the Kate Winslet Ah. like when it came out like a decade ago sure I watched that so I think I also was like well I've seen it I know Mildred Pierce I know that story um but I much preferred this film this film I love the changes that they made to the book I think it's great that they turned it into kind of a this murder mystery noir feeling I really liked it I loved the ambition of the women in this we're again we're gonna get to that let me do the plot synopsis first for the people at home Mildred Pierce 1945 it opens on this gorgeous house on the beach which was filmed in Santa Monica and I saw that they had to get like special permission because it was recorded during World War II and they had to get like special permission from the Navy to shoot there oh I didn't know that isn't it crazy so yes we see a man who we eventually learn will be Monty getting shot and falling over and saying Mildred and we don't really see who did it although I do want to get back to this because the way they show it to us in the beginning is very deceptive based on what eventually happens they very much try to trick you and you're like "Mm, that didn't happen in real time the way you're saying it did but it's fine it's fine it's a movie and we love it so we know right off someone's gonna get murdered this guy that's handsome with a mustache who says Mildred's name gets murdered we don't know who did it um we see Joan Crawford like walking along a pier she looks as though she may commit suicide but a police officer stops her so she doesn't commit suicide and she she continues to walk down the pier and she bumps into this guy Wally who literally screwed her over just what an hour before maybe less than that wally immediately hits on her and it comes out like he's been hitting on her for years and she's like you know what fine wally come to my beach house so wally comes to the beach house and um she pretends like she's gonna you know maybe 
hook up with him. <laughs> but she escapes the beach house and kind of locks him in. As he's escaping, police show up because they think he's an intruder. The body is found. All hell breaks loose. The witnesses are rounded up. So we're at the Justice Department. It's all the people who are involved in whatever this is. We know very little. We meet Mildred. We meet her ex-husband, Bert. We meet... We don't even know Eve Arden yet. And we're like, what do we think of Eve Arden? Is she a mistress? Who is she? Who is this person? All we've heard is ex-husband. Like, we don't know anything. Um, so, yeah, we're kind of piecing things together based on what we're seeing, but we know nothing. Um, and then Mildred ends up in the room after some very awesome, suspenseful moments of, like, the clock ticking, papers rustling, time passing, whistling. Oh, no, it's so suspenseful. So she ends up in the room. She's with the cop. And she starts telling the copper life story. Um, it flashes back to four years before. And we learn about Mildred. And we learn about her life as a homemaker and how she's always in the kitchen. We learn about her husband, Bert. We learn that she wishes she hadn't gone on this journey and just stayed with Bert. And we meet her two kids, Vita and Kay. Kay is a sheer delight. Oh, she's amazing. And Vita is the devil. But... <laughs> We don't know that yet. We don't know that yet. It pieces together throughout. We see her one crack at a time. We learn how villainous Vita really is. And it's just fantastic to watch. I really just love the unraveling of like the character of Vita. The more we learn about her, we're like, oh my God, you're pure evil and it's great. Whew. Okay, so Mildred. She will do anything for her kids. She literally says that. And when she says, you mentioned it earlier, she loves Vita more because Vita doesn't love her back. Mildred is very self-sabotaging. She tends to ignore red flags, I noticed. And yeah, so she tends to choose people who are not going to treat her right. She picks a fight with her husband. He leaves and she's like, I'm raising these kids on my own. And she gets a job as a waitress and she builds herself up and she learns the restaurant business and she opens successful restaurant businesses all over the place with help from the awesome Eve Arden as her buddy. And they make a ton of money and she's rich, but it still is not enough to placate Vita. And so it gets worse and worse and she kind of like breaks from Vita and then is like, nope, I need my girl back. I need Vita back. I will do anything. So she marries this man who she thinks will give her some sort of clout because it's not just about money. It's about like elite, like not new money, but old money kind of clout. So she marries this man named Monty who's awful and just screws her over and also has an affair with her daughter Vita. And then we find out at the end of the film, spoiler alert, that Vita was the killer the whole time. Are we surprised? No, because she's terrible. <laughs> she's a monster. Of course she killed him. And at the very end of the film, the cops were like, yeah, we, we knew. We just needed to put you in the situation so you could like tell us, so you could give us the final information. We had a feeling and we were right. Her daughter comes in. We know she's gonna go to jail and she does the great like, I'll be fine, mother. <laughs> and then she leaves. And then Mildred being, oh, and we forgot to mention Kay dies of pneumonia, which oh, is Oh, that was sad. heartbreaking. I know. <sighs> in the TV show, I feel like she was hit by a car. Like, I feel like it was very um, I don't dramatic. In that one. So anyway, Kay, the lovely, wonderful human who we totally adore, dies. So Mildred is kind of alone without her children, but we know it's going to be okay because she sees her ex-husband, Bert, and we see like City Hall in the background. Justice has been served. The last line of the film is like, let's let in some fresh air. We're all starting new. Vita's in jail. 
It's all going to be okay. That's Mildred Pierce. And I do also want to mention the style is great. The cinematography is great. The music's great. It's very film noir. It is, but not because film noir can be so dark and gritty and depressing. And this has like sheen on it. It's like. That's true. I just think of some of the shadows of it, you know, it's, it's hope, but the hope is always dwindling. I do wish that there was like a Mildred Pierce too, except I would want it to be about Vita and her time in prison because I think that would be such a good movie. I just want to watch Vita. She would make a, a name for herself in prison, like somehow want to be in the news and feel sorry for me. And I, that's how I see it. She be would like, be Velma and Roxy and come thank out you. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Yes. Exactly. That's how I feel. She'd somehow find her way out and again, try to go after all her mother's money. But her mom might not even have any money anymore because Monty sold the share. That's true. Putting a 2021 lens on it of just like, <laughs> what doesn't totally hold up? I don't love that, like, almost the message of the movie, too, is like, if she had just stayed a housewife and listened to her husband, none of this would have happened. Absolutely. <sighs> and just how, like, all the men in it always are making snarky comments about her success. Yes. And it's just like, give her a break. She's incredible what she accomplishes. Her ambition is fantastic and it's wonderful to watch. She starts a business from nothing and builds it and builds it. She works so hard. She is the American dream. And every single man like continually undermines her, cuts her down, lessens her success, and then like benefits off it, steals from her. I feel like Mildred is a builder and the people that she chooses in her life are wreckers. Like they destroy and she just needs to pick up on red flags better. I'll get through this with this person to get here, but not realize the repercussions that those people are always gonna be around unless you cut them. So on a personal note, I have a person in my family who has narcissistic personality disorder and it, oh, okay. it sucks. Like I choose to not have a relationship with that person and I have a book obviously that I read about this thing and it has a great quote about people like their psychology people that have this disorder and it just applied so hard to Vita that I was like oh I gotta read it so she clearly has like some sort of if it's not narcissistic personality disorder it's she's a sociopath or a psychopath or whatever that is that lack of empathy that lack of like the ability to put on a human emotion but not feel it and not like be it this is the the quote it says, scientific research on narcissists, as well as sociopaths and psychopaths, has shown that they have an empathy deficient disorder. Full-blown narcissists use what seems like empathy to get what they want when you begin to distance yourself, but their empathy is not reliable or real. Narcissists are persuasive charmers who know exactly what to say to emotionally seduce you. If you try to leave, they will sweet talk you to get you back, but their quote unquote empathy will only last as long as they need it to. There are always strings attached to the favors they bestow. Once you've returned, they'll revert to being self-absorbed again. When you are in relationships with these kinds of people, like you have compassion, you expect them to have it, but it's basically like this book is like, you can't win a narcissist over with love. I'm sorry to say it won't work. It's like expecting someone without a heart to know how to love. That is Vita to a T. That's the psychology, baby. No heart. No heart. And even when her sister dies, you almost watch her because you're like, is she going to cry? Is it going to be real? And she immediately goes, mother, like, hold me. Like, feel bad for me because my sister just died versus you're a mother who just lost a child who's even feeling guilty because it was right when she came back from hanging out with Monty at the beach. 
She's so manipulative. And it's like, let's talk about the cracks when we start to see it. Because with Vita, I think the first time you see it is when her mother has worked so hard to buy her this dress. And she puts on the dress and she's like, oh, this is so ugly. And there's a part of me that was like, I can totally see myself at 14 being like, oh, mom, I can't believe you got this for me. It's so, I would never pick this out. So it's like, at first you're like, this is kind of normal teen behavior a little bit. Like, Absolutely. I definitely had brat moments. I was like, did she pick out the dress or did Mildred just go, I'm just going to randomly buy her a dress? I think it sounded like that one that Mildred randomly bought her. Big mistake with a teenager. Don't do that. Don't do that. Let them pick it out. But also like, I feel Kay just kind of gets shunned to the side. Like, did you buy her Kay anything? Like perfect, easy child. Poor Kay's just like, I want to go play out with the boys and, and is goofy and the little singing part she does, you just fall in love with her. And so you're like, why don't give all the attention to her? She's adorable. It's almost, yeah, like she almost wanted to make uh, Vita put her up on this pedestal of like, look how gorgeous my daughter is. And this woman she's becoming, I want to give her the world. And there's the pushing of her children too, like the ambition she has for her kids and for herself. It's almost like since she can't express the ambition through herself, she has to express it through her kids. So her daughter has to be, like I know because of the Mildred Pierce that Kate Winslet did, that there's this whole arc they didn't put in this movie about how Vita actually is a very talented opera singer. That's a whole arc in the film of like, she really is a successful opera singer. Right. So she really does have this talent that needed cultivating. Which I always thought was surprising they didn't do in this one because Anna was a great, incredible singer. She was discovered doing vaudeville. So she sings a tiny bit in this movie, but it's not to like showcase her talent. So it's interesting that they didn't give her that credit, but then it's also, it kind of goes back to the era, the time period. You don't want to give the women too much of something successful, almost like Vita couldn't be successful on her own as a singer. Yeah, it was like all the women had to have negative effects from their success. So Joan Crawford, it's like, she's not going to get to keep it. Eve Arden, well, she's going to be single. She's not going to have a man. Vita, she's going to go to jail. So yeah, there are ramifications for each woman's success. I never put that together until you said it. Also, why am I even talking? Because you talked to Anne Blythe. Please share the dish. Well, it's funny we brought up the singing thing because she was known as a singer and she went on to do a movie called the Helen Morgan story. They dubbed Anne Blythe's voice because my Aunt Anne was operatic. And so they didn't want her to sing high. And so that was like a huge thing that kind of, and it was, she gets to make out Paul Newman in it. And uh, it's funny. A lot of critics kind of panned the movie because they knew it wasn't her voice singing voice. So I'm like, I wonder if the movie just didn't do as well because of that, but. And Michael Curtiz directed that too. Like it's a, they're them coming back together. And there was another movie that came out that year, a Helen Morgan movie. So I think too, that was like, it's like the competitor film. Um, but yeah, she, she's a marvelous human being. She's 92 now. She's still extremely smart, sharp, very well-spoken, absolutely adores her fans. She still answers her fan mail. And she even said, I worry, I don't worry, but the when the fan mail starts to go away, I know it's because Mildred Pierce is not as popular because she said that is like her number one biggest fan request. I mean, it jumps her career. She was nominated for an Oscar for it for a supporting actress at 
17 years old, which is incredible. The confidence that she had and just the skill set she had at 17. I asked her, you know, what was a day in the life of working on the movie? And she actually said it was exhausting because she was still in school. So she goes, the moment we finished a scene, I had to go straight back to my trailer and I was doing schoolwork, working with the tutor. So she didn't have a too much downtime to kind of, you know, take in the world around her. She was very focused on obviously the role and the work. And I think it helped she did have the right people around her, which she's talked about because you hear, I think just in general, any young actress, no matter the era, you have to make sure you're choosing the right roles. You have to make sure you have the right people around you. You know, sometimes it comes down to parents and everything. So she said she really felt she had the right people that supported her. And she was, you know, pretty selective about what she did. And she retired from film relatively younger because she wanted a family. She was very Irish Catholic and wanted a family and married Dennis Day's brother, who's a McNulty, a very Irish name. Wait, can you also share the story that you shared with me right before the podcast? Because it was so good. Amblai's husband was a doctor who worked in Los Angeles. Side note, her house was in Toluca Lake, which is literally across the street from where I live now. So it's kind of neat that her old house is a hop skip away. Um, but he was a doctor. And when I started dating my now fiance, he was very excited to go home and tell his parents, hey, I met this amazing girl. I mean, this is how it plays in my mind, amazing girl. Um, But she's the granddaughter of Dennis Day and his mom freaked out. And she says, do you know that my gynecologist, the doctor who brought you into this world was Anne Blythe's husband, who is Dennis Day's brother. So just very Kiss Met, as we said earlier, which is title of another Amblai film, serendipitous, uh, just how small the world is, I guess is how you'd say it. In my like Nora Ephron brain, I'm like, you're meant for each other, MFEO. I know, right? It's fate. Uh, I know, as we talk about kind of like getting away from like these perfect world serendipitous. But yeah, it's just such a crazy small world. And Jeff met Anne Blythe a couple years ago. Uh, we do, well, obviously family reunions. And it was like, One of the first things I said, and she just was like, what a small world. That's unbelievable. But yeah, she's an absolute delight still. She loves talking about her career. She was honored by TCM Turner Classic Movies. That was probably almost 10 years ago. She's getting up there. So she watches obviously her physical movement stuff, but uh, she loves writing back to her fans and talking about films. She's a very proud member of the Academy. She's been watching so many movies lately because it's great because you can watch them at home. So she, and she watches everything. She has an opinion about them all, but she said her biggest one this year is her favorite is it's the new Anthony Hopkins movie called The Father. She just kept saying how amazing he is and brilliant. So if you want Anne Blythe's recommendation, watch The Father. But yeah, she's an absolute delight. I tried to get out of her of like, who is your favorite co-star? Yeah. <laughs> And she really is, again, she's, she could be a great politician. She said, I was blessed to work with so many marvelous people, especially in what is considered the golden era of Hollywood. Um, And I'm just reminded how lucky I was, again, to have the right team around her and have a strong head on her shoulder and know also what she wanted. She was a family person. So she put her family first and worked really hard. You know, I think sometimes that era gets a rap of like, oh, they were discovered being a waitress at a a restaurant, which 
you know, we've heard those stories, but I think there comes a point too, you do have to somewhat have some talent. She knew what she wanted, but she worked hard and she wasn't going to do shady things. She was so young too. I feel like I learned a lot about your great aunt today. So it's so funny that I'm like, on the internet, I found this ad about your great aunt. But she was in Watch on the Rhine on Broadway when she was like 13 and 14 with Paul Lucas, who like wins the Oscar for that, like beats out Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca to win the Oscar for Watch on the Rhine. So she acts with him for years, playing his daughter on Broadway. The great Lillian Hellman like wrote that piece. I think when we're young, sometimes we don't appreciate history until we're older. But it was only years ago I started binging all of Anne Blythe's movies to be like, this is so cool. Like, I have to remember, like, she's my great aunt. She's a phone call away. She doesn't live actually very far from here. I see her once in a while. And just the constant, like, wow, here's a movie with Gregory Peck. Here's Paul <laughs> Newman. Like, yep. Woo. And as a, you know, typical me, I'm like, so what's it like to kiss Paul Newman? You know, that's like actually what I want to know. Like so bad because he is my man. He is my favorite of the Hollywood men. You want to know the dish, but she has nothing but obviously very positive things to say. But I think it's because she was a classy woman who wanted respect. So she gave the respect and worked hard and takes very good care of herself up until she had a recent injury, but up until that, she, I mean, she was doing yoga every day in her eighties. And I used to joke, like she's very well preserved because she just still looks great. And when she goes out, she doesn't wear a ton of makeup, but she still wears that era of makeup. Like I need a little bit of lipstick, you know, to look that was good. Like my grandma. Yeah. Right. It's that era. And when uh, my other aunt had a big family reunion, it was like the last time I saw Anna Ann in person, which is now almost two years ago. She wasn't going to come, but her, my second cousins, her daughters were like, no, you should come. And she's like, I don't want to drive. And they're like, mom, you're Anne Blythe, just book a service. So she like hired a driver to drive her to this family reunion. And she made an appearance for like a couple hours and then left. Like, it's just amazing to think like that lifestyle of like, mom, just call the driver, you're Anne Blythe, like this is your family. I think she is someone that is obviously just super grateful for what she had and that history. And just hearing her mention the other day when I was talking to her about like, what was the hardest thing? It's just like, oh, well, and I had to shoot Zachary Scott, my co-star. Like just hearing her say his name with such respect as well, like, you know, it, it's just, it's pretty cool. And it just reminds me how lucky I am to have those conversations, even if they're short. I, you know, I do want to be respectful of her time. Uh, like when I called her, I was like, do you have a few minutes? I just want to pick your brain about Mildred Pierce. And she's like, absolutely. Well, and the cast is great. And I loved hearing that story about her being afraid to shoot. Z I almost want to call him Zachary Quinto because he, to me, looks like Zachary Quinto. He totally me. does. So Zachary Scott, you don't get that sense that this is difficult for her in that moment. Do you know what oh, I mean? Absolutely. Like she, she totally, she's so gutsy. Like, I think it must be this thing about being young because I think about that. Remember when Jennifer Lawrence was in Winter's Bone and she was 19 and she was bringing it? And not oh, that yeah. she's not bringing it now, but it's just like it was such a special performance. You get that sense from this. It's like there's no fear there. There's no right? fear. It's just she is the age of the character she's playing. Like she's really going through this. She's really feeling these feelings. She is in it. Um, so yeah, I, I just think it's like a very cool, very gutsy performance. And I am a fan of it. Like this is so... This is so cool that we get to like hear someone's real insight because normally it's just me going on the internet and being like, I think, I, <laughs> I think heard this, this is how they felt. So yeah, to know that that was a difficult thing for her is really And cool. I do remember when Feud came out just a couple years ago, but I remember looking up 
because they mention a little bit uh, Mildred Pierce in it. But I found a picture of Joan Crawford and it was like a publicity still of her teaching Anne Blythe how to knit. I called Anne Anne, but she was like, oh yeah, she taught me how to knit. So it was, even though it was like kind of a publicity still, it's kind of just that idea like, oh, it wasn't staged. It was Joan literally had a very motherly connection with, with Anne Blythe that I think does play on film and Joan plays very well in her very dramatic close-ups with the lighting. You see the emotion of her looking at her daughter and wanting her to just be happy. Can I ask about Michael Curtiz? Did she say anything about working with him? No, I didn't get to that, but her memory is so sharp. I even asked her, I know you were 17, but, and I don't know how much you remember it. She goes, oh, I have a great memory. Like, it's just (laughs) great. So I bet if, you know, I could chunk some more time, I could get some probably more experiences out of her just because she just is she's so confident and I love that she owns her history and is so open to it and just the idea that she's like fan mail one who still gets like hard copy fan mail. <laughs> like I should have asked her I'm like do you get emails like her fans know she's an older person's like let me write her a letter so I'm glad that we live in the time that we do but this era is so special in movie making. Oh, absolutely. So to have someone that was there that lived it, but that also has a positive side of it too. Because I feel like my friend Nick was on the show, but he kind of brought up this thing like, you just have to assume everyone from the past is awful. That way right. when they're not, you're not disappointed because everybody was awful. So to find out like, oh no, for this person, actually it wasn't so bad. Like they they got to get out kind of unscathed, but still have this beautiful career and beautiful time in the movies. So years ago, she did tell me, it, and I again, I mentioned this before, it's because of who was around her, because she even said, if I was 17 now, I don't think I could be an actor. With the paparazzi, with media, she goes, it is such a different world and she goes I don't know if I would have had that protective bubble you know we see it happen with sometimes younger actors go down dark paths and I feel it sometimes did happen then I mean Judy Garland's an example she was around the same age as her and also Shirley Temple she had a hard time crossing over into adult roles my aunt said I just was lucky And I just, again, think I saw the good in people around me to make sure I didn't have those paths. The world's so different. And that was one of the things I asked her, and it was a question you recommended I ask of, what is the big difference of movies now than back then? And she specifically said content. The content is just so different now. And the style, obviously. Um, And again, when you have this podcast to talk about also like, wow, this movie is makes me realize men sucked back then, you know, if this movie was made today, we'd all be like, come on. But yeah, she definitely said content. And it is nice to hear positive things. A little bit of the opposite with my grandma and my grandpa. My grandpa died when I was pretty young. So I got most of the stories from my grandma. She had a very funny attitude about certain people that I think is not public that you're like hearing from an app, like a perspective like that, like, oh, did you hear about this actor? That's another day on your podcast. We'll talk about some of those old Hollywood stories. But Anne Blythe is just so positive and kind and nice and a legend who's still sharp and with it and looks great. Oh, I love it. This is all great. Um, So, yeah, we talked about the men drink whiskey with soda. She drinks it straight. She can handle her shit. I love it. And then also she, like, at the beginning was like, I don't drink much. And then towards the end it was like, more. 
Well, Give yeah. me more. <laughs> that was a constant theme too. If she was like, I will never do this. Cut to like the next scene she's doing that. She was saying to Bert in the beginning, if you slap Vita, there's gonna be hell to pay. She slaps Vita. And then there's another point where she's like, Vita, I'm not gonna marry someone I don't love. And then she's like, just kidding, Vita for you, I will of course marry someone I don't love. It's totally gonna go down like a business proposal. She has no sense of self because she's only living for other people. It's one of those movies you're yelling at the screen, but at the same time, you're reveling in it. It's watching cycles of abuse and understanding how certain people until they've like healed that pain can never get over it. They're gonna keep going back into this cycle. Well, and Monty at the beginning when she first meets him, they have like a moment and then he is very kind to her. And they have this like the beach house right before freaking Kay dies. But it's like, you have this moment of hope for Mildred where you're like, wow, she's finding love again. Vita's not around. They're having a little tryst at the beach and you're kind of like, oh, maybe she's on the right path to finding someone. And then, see, it's so funny because I was like, dude, everything that comes out of your mouth is super corny. I don't trust you as far as I can throw you. You've got all these women's bathing suits in your closet. Like, red flag, red flag, red flag. And I think she just wanted a break. She wanted romance. He's hot. Her daughter's not around. She's finally letting her hair down for a minute. I think maybe it's because we know Monty is dead in the beginning. Like, that's the first thing we see. Sure. You're like, oh. I don't trust you. And then we think Mildred did it halfway through the film because he says Mildred. Yeah. Why does he say Mildred? Do we know why he says Mildred? I love the Eve Arden character. What's so funny is it'd been so long since I watched the movie and when she started talking, I was like, is that the principal from Greece? She's got such a distinct voice, but she's like the one character you're like rooting for. She's funny. She sees the writing on the wall all the time. Doesn't cross her boundaries with Mildred because Mildred's her boss beginning when she's brought in the police i was like i hope she's not getting in trouble but she didn't she didn't do anything she's like the moral compass a little bit she's the truth teller you get worried in the beginning like you were saying for me it was more i was worried that they had fallen out with each other so the first time you see her at first i was like maybe she's someone's mistress like was she that guy's mistress maybe and then no 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 of course she's not She's Mildred's friend. And so I kept being like, oh, please don't let anything bad happen to this friendship. Yeah. It was so nice to see like two strong, ambitious women supporting each other on screen. How great did that feel? And Eve Arden is so smart and sassy. And you were saying her voice for me. I listen to the old timey radio programs. Um, our Miss Brooks is one of my regular ones I listen to. And she's so good. Her comedic timing is spot on. She's great. It's her timing, her voice, almost has a Mae West quality a little bit. Like she can do those one-liners really well. She's so, so witty and sharp. I did write down some of her movies for people at home. If you're like, ah, oh, who's Eve Arden? Eve Arden, we, the top two I wrote down are Our Miss Brooks and Grease, but she was also in like Anatomy of a Murder, Cover Girl, Night and Day. She's great in Stage Door. She plays the kind of villainous girl you can't trust in the, oh, the house. Stage Door is one of my favorites. Um, and she actually has, I think, the best line in the whole film, which I shall read for you. She sees through Vita. And she keeps being like, look, Joan Crawford, I know Vita is your daughter, but she's literally evil. Like, she's a horrible person. <laughs> you should really cut her out of your life. The line about her. Personally, Vita convinced me that alligators have the right idea. They eat their young. Ugh. What a great line. It's very Eve Arden-esque there. I tried. Know. And then I was like, am I putting the right inflection on the wrong syllable? Because I'm really just focusing on my Eve Arden. I felt like Eve Arden was here with us all of a sudden. Maybe she was. Oh. And I took off my mask. <laughs> I was Eve Arden all along. I'm so glad we went down an Eve Arden rabbit hole. I was like, I hope we do. Because I just, 
I love her as an actress and I love her in this role and I love her part. Like that would be the part I would want to play in this. Oh, absolutely. I just also like watching how women worked in those shoes as a server. Like my feet hurt watching the movie. Just like all the women the uniforms the waitresses wore and then just even Eve Arden like always looking so put together in the years I've worked in a restaurant like I never wore that like there was one time I just like when I was hosting I'm like I'm gonna wear like a little kitten heel nope I couldn't even last an hour but that was the norm back then so then I'm like are our bodies just suck now like we can't handle all the heels well I also think this was totally movie-fied like I really don't think it was Mm. like that in real life because I mean there's the scene where Joan Crawford is in the restaurant dusting and her hair is kind of a beautiful mess and she's wearing those white shoes that are crazy high and I was like no that is a no you are never gonna just be like dusting your home with those gorgeous heels on. But maybe maybe I'm totally wrong. I was just like, no, this has to be a movie thing. It's like how in any rom-com that you watch, their house is perfect, their clothes are perfect. Like, we all know that's not real. So I think it's just kind of that the movie sheen. It's the movie sheen. Right, yeah. The, the design. The co- They're like, this is what it will look like in this world. <laughs> Even though yeah. no waitress ever will wear these shoes because they would die. Yeah. I did want to point out, like, the costumes are incredible in general. Oh, so good. Michael Curtiz apparently hated the big shoulder pads. I guess he, like, that was a big thing for him. But they were so perfect for that character. They're perfect. Like, they were part of his, like, schmarmy. No, for Mildred. He hated her. Oh, for Mildred. I thought you meant. um, I thought Jack Carson's shoulder pads were perfect. Uh, That's what I That's who I was talking about. No, Jack Carson's. That's who I thought you were talking about. Sorry. He just had this, like, I mean, both him and Monty had, like, a greasiness to them that was like, stay away. You're, like, that smarmy creep guy, but, like, she has to keep you around because she, in her mind, needs you for something, and you know that. And they kept calling her greasy. They kept being like, ah, the grease of the working class, of the cooks. And I'm like, you're all gross and greasy and slimy. So it's brilliant casting. Like, I really do think this is such a strong cast and it's so smart because, like, you've got Jack Carson, who is this, like, friendly, amiable dude, but he's a slime ball. So that's, like, revealed and released. So your first impression never matches the character. Like, what we as an audience know about Jack Carson at this time is that he's, like, friendly buddy comedy guy. You know, so then yeah. we put this on and we're like, oh, that's our friendly buddy. We like him. <gasps> no. Oh, he's a total scumbag. You think he's going to help her in some way, you know, but it's more like, so now I can move in. And you're like, no, dude, like give her some space. It's always about him. He has that great line, too, that I wrote down that tells us who he is almost immediately where it's um, well, she says to him, you can talk your way out of anything, which is great because she says it several times. And then she sets him up for murder and she's like, talk your way out of this. And he does. But still. He has the quote um, towards the beginning, there's something about the sound of my own voice that fascinates me. And you're like, oh, that's who you are. You're that guy. Um, and he's so gropy. He's so gropy with her. I, 2021 lens putting it on, I was like, the sexual harassment she has to endure in this film is astonishing. It's constant. She is constantly sexually harassed all the time. It's stressful. And a lot of it at the hands, literally the hands, of Jack Carson. It was accepted back then. Yep. And that's why you hear these stories of, like, behind the scenes, not necessarily on this movie, but, like, casting couch and just, like, it was okay to be touchy-feely. No, it's not! But back then, it was just you, you didn't want to speak up. You didn't want to say anything because you're like, I don't want to get fired today. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. or this is what I have to do to get ahead. Or this is what I have to do to be safe. Cause like we're saying, oh, this happened back then. But like I, in my life have been sexually harassed several times. And it's like, you never behave the way you think you will. One, because you're so shocked it's happening. You're like, oh my God, so you, this is You almost what? like freeze, yeah. So you kind of freeze. And then also you're like, I just have to get out of here safely in one piece. So you you turn on your nice machine. You become the nicest Thanks. human ever. <laughs> and you just get the fuck out of there. Sorry, I said fuck. You get out of there. <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever told off someone who sexually harassed me. And I mean, is that good? Is that bad? I don't know. I kept myself safe, but it's like... Yeah, it still happens today. I totally felt what Mildred was feeling. And it's so frustrating because everyone constantly doubts her and she is such a success. Like if people would just get out of her way. Mildred Pierce is also the story of a woman with big ideas who is excited by these ideas and keeps getting thwarted by men objectifying her and not letting her fly. That was my own hot take when I was note taking. Every time she is successful, it's just. Yeah, but it's like the people around her judge her for working but fully benefit off of her work. And it's disgusting. It's like, well, where yep. do you think that money comes from? When Vita goes to sing at the bar and he's like, you did this to your daughter. <sighs> Dude, you the one that encouraged Vita to come here and sing. He got her the job, right? She finally has a real job. I was like, good, she's learning the damn ropes. This is good for her. Oh, and before I know what I, I remember, but I want to say about Jack Carson too, with like, you'd mentioned the suits and I love how the costumes do storytelling too. So the way they dress Jack Carson is they really build him up. He's got these big shoulders. He's kind of like stocky. Yes, yeah, stocky. That's the best word for it. You're not really into that guy and he can be either menacing on one side or like jovial. Kind jovial of. yeah he's got these two sides and you see it in the dressing and then same with monty they dress him in those um like with that belt right in the middle you know what i mean where it's like the suit but with the belt he looks very dashing and very like european and so they just tell a story just with their costumes and then vita always looks amazing her costumes the one that she wore on her birthday oh yeah oh my god the beautiful silver and then when she when she hooks up with Monty, she like was making out with Zachary Stewart. She's laying on the thing like this, but like so confidently, like she knew her sex appeal. I also wonder with the birthday party, cause she looks so gorgeous and she like walks out of the party at one point, I think the phone call. I was like, who's at this party? Like who are Vita's friends? Does she have friends? She must, maybe. She I don't must. know. All the fake rich people are there at that party, and it must be so boring. So yeah, there's the top three manipulative people who are Wally, Monty, and Vita. They are always selfish, and their themes, they, they always say something the other person has said. I can think of no examples right now, obviously, but it's like they each repeat each other in various ways. They all kind of bleed and blend, and they're always looking out for themselves and how they can come out on top, and it's only about them, no one else. So when Vita, when Vita gets married, she finds this millionaire who, why didn't she just stay married to him for a little bit and get like a divorce settlement is the question, but whatever, it's fine. Maybe that era, you didn't win a lot in divorce oh, court. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. So, okay. So Vita gets married as part of a scheme and it's another time we see like her evilness coming out of her. She marries this man. He's not bright, let's just say. 
um, and he's very wealthy. And he wants to stay married to her. He wants to stay married to her because she can put on this act. She's young, beautiful. They've had sex. He's like, yes, this is the best. And so she is trying to get money from this and get it annulled. And so she makes up this pregnancy to get money from them. And I, I don't know. I don't think it's like the worst thing ever, but it's like the way she handles it. It's the villainousness of like the reveal of this is the first time we 100% see who Vita is without the veneer in front of her mother. She tells her mother exactly what she did, why she did it. She's totally callous about it. She kisses the check. And she's got that line of like, I'm getting away from you with this money, mom. Bye. So yeah, that's like the first evil, true evil Vita moment we see and they're all in black. She didn't have anything to say about that. No, she really just emphasized on that gun scene, just how terrified she was, which is interesting now that I think about it because you really only see one or two clips of her holding the gun. I'm wondering if there wasn't a lot of good takes, like if she just hearing from her, like she said, I'm still terrified of guns. Like she- Like I don't blame her, they're scary (laughs) that they kill people. Right, and who knows back then, was it a prop gun? Was it a real gun? Like, I guess I should have asked her that, but- Cause I'm like, you really only see her holding it. I feel at one point and then it cuts to like a shadow of the shooting and then the gun falling. So she didn't say anything about the check scene or the, the blackmail. The blackmail scene. <laughs> They're wearing black for the blackmail scene. Yeah. Well, and it's great because it showcases her so well because she does play off the innocence in the meeting. It's like she can do both sides of the coin so beautifully. And that's why Vita is so great. Cause we see that she can put on this character that behaves like a real person would, with compassion and with fear and with all of these things. And then she'll lift the mask for you and you're like, whoa, you have no heart, no soul. You are the most shallow, selfish human there is. Wow. Which knowing Anne Blythe is hilarious because she was so into like her family, religion i mean she released an album of church hymns like she's just the opposite which is why i think she probably relished in those roles and i think you do hear sometimes a lot of actors going oh i love to play the bad guy you know because we're not you don't see yourself as that evil and and i i feel like Amblythe didn't play a lot of these dark characters she like i said was always kind of the ingenue and happy and pretty and her voice. And that's why we buy it. Everyone's flipped on their head. And the thing is, we have seen Joan Crawford play the bad girl. So we're almost, at first, you kind of are expecting her because she's giving you every reason about why this could be her that shot this man. Right. You know, she's telling us her life story to the cop. And so we're seeing, oh, she's building a case for why this was okay to shoot him. I mean, again, halfway through, we're like, okay, no, but Vita clearly shot him because clearly, like, that had to have happened. Sure. Um, Especially when she confesses halfway through the film and you're like, okay, no, no, you didn't do it. Because at first they accuse her ex-husband. He clearly did not do it. It was hinted that he just lied to say he did it. Like, I think it was that he didn't deny it. They were like, did you do it? And he was like, eh. But I'm wondering, though, if he maybe didn't know that Vita did it. Maybe he did think that Mildred did it, so he wanted to do it for her because he still loved her. Well, and I, I think his love is still kind of toxic too, though. He is not behaving great either. He's basically like, mind me and do what I say. You won't? Well, then I'm leaving you. No child support. Bye. Like To be like, don't talk to me. I need to lay on the couch and read my paper when she's like, I, I just want to talk to you. Like, oh, I, I hemmed your pants so you can get a job. Like, he's unemployed. Good for you, Meltra. Get out of there. But at the same time, it's like, 
I just wish she just spoiled Kay. But Kay loved her. And again, Mildred is super into people that don't love her back. Like, if you're going to mistreat her, she's going to give you her whole heart. She cannot seem to help it. So I hope she worked her way out of this cycle and that Bird is better following all of this. But I like that she's basically like, hey, we're having a fight. Please don't call that single woman down the street. Please don't go hang out with her right now. He's like, no, I do what I want. And I'm like, no, dude, come on. Like, that's a very reasonable request, I think. Salt to the wound when Kay's dying and her ex-husband's like, oh, he's at that woman's house that you accused me of having an affair with. You're like, really? Her daughter's dying (laughs) in the house of your mistress. Like, come on. Which also makes no sense because he's like, I didn't know what to do. And I'm like, she should be in her own bed, first of all. Second of all, like, you didn't know what to do. You ask the woman over to your house and you keep everybody at your house. Like, why is that so difficult? And was he living with her? That's what I was confused about. That he, if he moved in with her or not. Pothole. They never make it clear if they really are having an affair. I don't know. I was just on Mildred's side for that. But he did have a point about the kids. And at first we are on Mildred's side because in, in normal relationships, we're like, yes, we want a mother to love her kids that much. But yeah, the ambition thing of like, push it, my kids must be excellent. One has to be a ballerina. One has to be good at piano. Yeah, I see that she needed a different outlet. And guess what? She found it for herself. She found it in restauranteering. And she's smart, guys. She's the first person ever in the world to think of putting a bar inside of a restaurant. And I think it caught on. I'm pretty sure it caught on. Absolutely. Good work, Mildred. Yeah. I did wonder if that was a thing after this. I was like, was this the first time anyone had ever thought of that? She was very proud of it. And Monty was like, shh, 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 hush. Hush, lady. I don't care about your ideas. I care about your body. And then she was like, okay. Also, I feel like back then you didn't hear about like a chain of restaurants being a woman's name. Like Denny's. Was Denny a woman? I don't know. And I heard that was a thing that's different from the book too. In the book, it's just like three restaurants. But in the movie, they were like, no, no, no. We go big here. Like 10. And also, were they all in L.A.? now living in LA as long as I have like the references to different LA cities oh you're gonna go live in Glendale I was like what's wrong with Glendale and then like just also knowing how expensive Santa Monica is and beachfront property uh so yeah there's a couple neighborhoods you're like oh well just knowing where things are it's just a delight to do that um I did want to talk about like the cinematography of it because you had brought that up earlier how gorgeous it is um the light that they use is like fabulous it's the classic like the light is directly in your eyes shadows above shadows below and then the the shadows of the full bodies that we see I was trying to link them because I love to find out what things mean but I couldn't I couldn't find a common oh yeah I don't know it is very cinematic of that era and it's a blend like you said it's not completely film noir, but it just, it has a essence of it. Because especially when just that one specific scene where she's sitting in the police office waiting her turn and just that feeling, it was such a cinematic scene timed perfectly. It's so suspenseful. It was all putting in pieces of the puzzle because that's what this movie is. It's a puzzle. And so this builds on that. We've had like moments of action and now we're sitting. We're processing everything we've just learned and we're with Mildred. What's going on? It's late. We're just getting all of this information and we're put in this specific atmosphere that makes us tense. The ticking of the clock, the rustling of the papers, the whistle. It's so, and the cops even say later, like we were priming you. We did all that on purpose. So yeah, all of that is wonderful. I, I mean, we can jump into Michael Curtiz as well. I almost... So everyone at home, if you want to hear more about Michael Curtiz, our White Christmas episode, we talk a lot about him. (laughs) 
And I think it's really funny because I know his name is Michael Curtiz, but his biographer at TCM Fest was calling him Michael Curtis because he says that's how it should be pronounced. Because <laughs> Michael Curtiz made up his name. He's Hungarian, and that's like his Americanized name. And that's how he would say it. But he's like, but based on like what it was, I guess, in Hungary and what it should be, it should be Curtis. So now I have this panic whenever I say his name of like, wait, hold on. Am I doing it the biographer way or the way that I choose to do it, which is the way Michael Curtis wanted? Hold on. So I always have like a slight moment of panic before I say his name because I don't want to, I don't want to go with the biographer. I've made my choice. We should ask Anne, how did she we say it? Should. Oh man. We can just write a fan letter to Anne. I'm sure she'd answer us. She doesn't always pick up the phone. It takes her sometimes a couple calls to pick up the phone. I was going to ask, was it a landline? Please tell me it was it's a landline. It's a landline. That's what was so funny because it, it went to like the landline voicemail. So then when I called again, the phone picked up, but all I could hear was a movie playing in the background. So it was almost like maybe she hit the phone and couldn't find it. I don't know. It's adorable. But I was like, what was funny was I was trying to figure out what movie she was watching. I would love I was to like, know. It sounded like an old people like, hello, like, hey, I've got your money here. So like, it was very like that old timey feel. I should have asked her. I love storytelling from back then as I do storytelling now. I just like watching storytelling through the ages. Yeah. I mean, I, I do know we have a lot of discussions what in old movies was considered inappropriate we kind of talked about Mildred Pierce of like how women were treated and how they were treated on film is obviously people absorb that so then out in the society in the world it, people thought it was okay to treat people that way so the whole message in the end kind of of this film is this film is called Mildred Pierce she starts off as Mildred Pierce, a married woman, to this guy, Burt Pierce, right? She goes through a whole arc and ends the film as Mildred Pierce, right? She's married someone else, but now she's back with Burt again. She's going to be Mildred Pierce again. Her whole journey is kind of like, I had ambition. I went out into the world. Ambition wasn't worth it. I just want to be in love with my husband. I guess I should have just stayed with him, stayed in that kitchen. I know that now. I'm not saying that that's what Mildred Pierce is necessarily. I'm just saying that is like one interpretation one could take from the film. It's frustrating. I wonder if the director or the writer wanted you to feel frustrated then. Like it's not a happy ending. As much as the music lifts a little at the end, she's leaving with him. It's still like, you're like, do did we want her to end up back with him? Also, because he was pretty awful. Unless he said something, like there was a redemption for him of like, I'm sorry, or I messed up. It was just, I'm here for you. So you should leave with me. Also, why is he back in the picture? Why is he leaving with her? Does he now want her money? Like, well, she doesn't have any. She got bought out. Like, she she has to pay the debts with her portion. She's out. But my question was like, oh, wait, now that Monty's dead, does she get his portion or does that now go to Wally? Wasn't he broke, though? Monty was broke and sold his portion, but it sounded like he sold it to Wally. So Wally has a greater stake in the company. That's what I'm confused about, though, because I'm like, if Monty's dead and they're married, what goes down? You know, like, what does she actually get? That was just a side question that I had in general. Does she still have the house? She could sell the house. She could sell the house. She still has options of making money. Although Bert, it sounded like, wanted her to be at home and not work, which is, again, frustrating. He is probably the least abusive of the three emotionally, but he's, again, as we've established several times, he's still not the greatest choice. Um, did Monty have a will? And did he leave things for Vita? <gasps> 
which she now can't have because she's going to be in jail for we don't even know how long, but she'll probably... She'll get out. She'll be a Roxy Velma of something. She's going to get a great lawyer. I mean, she did say, I'll be fine, mother. And she just walked off confidently with those cops. So. Well, and I, it was almost like, I want you to feel bad about this mother. Like, this is, she literally says, it's your fault. It's your fault as much as mine. And I'm like, oh my God, just take some responsibility for your actions. No, it's not her fault. Yes, she spoiled you, but you know what? You murdered someone. You did that. No, no. And and then just the entitlement of that scene, when she doesn't get what she wants, she literally resorts to murder. This is the first time anyone said no to her and she kills someone. And she kills him because she says to Mildred, like, I'm stealing your husband and we're gonna get married and he loves me and not you. And Monty's like, I don't love you. And also we're not getting married. What are you talking about? We're just sleeping together because did you see us over there on the bar? That was very sexy. Like, you're attractive, I'm attractive. And the lighting. Just her pose, like just lean back and put her chin up is just that come hither. The Mildred Monty kiss made me very uncomfortable. She didn't look comfortable. Her body could not relax. When he's like by the fire with her and he's putting his arms around her, she's so tight and tense even in the kiss. And then Vita's the opposite. Vita's like, I'm in control. Like it's, it's very sexy. Like it really, it's a powerful moment. And it's also different from, I don't know if you saw the Kate Winslet Mildred Pierce one, but that moment is handled with them just like completely naked. It's HBO. HBO it likes, was HBO. They have, they have a writer where it's like, we have to show this much nudity. I actually so. preferred the Anne Blythe way because I think it was a sexier moment versus like making an actress be totally naked. Absolutely. Like, Is that necessary? Right. Well, and that's why I feel like that a lot of movies nowadays miss that the older movies do. It's like, you don't need to show a lot of skin to be sexy. Just the way her confidence and laying on that bar. Because it is about the intimacy of the moment. It feels like you're walking in on something. You're capturing someone else's intimacy. Well, and that's what's so gross about that part at the same time. Because yeah. you're like, in a way, that's your dad. Like, that's your stepdad. And it's just so gross. Because, like, that means the entire time you were like, you're not my father. You're my lover. And You've had sex with my mom. I will say we don't know that they have actually had sex. Their marriage is a business arrangement, but likely, it's very likely that at some point they've had sex, yes. The physicality of like making out with somebody that also made out with your mom. Well, and she chose him from the beginning when she was 13 in that like first time she meets him scene. First of all, he's using the same moves that he used on his mom on her, even though it's clear he like knows this is Vita and he's not really hitting on her. He kind of makes that clear to us as the audience. You're like, the, this is what you did with the mom. Yep. Like this, the same thing, the way they're dancing with each other. She immediately has eyes for him and you can almost see it fixed. Like, oh, you, I choose you. You are what I want. You are my future. And even the part where I was like, oh, Joan, you sad, sad, stupid woman, as Mildred, um, <laughs> when she's just like, I know what I'll do. I'll marry Monty, and then Vita will want to come back to me because I'll have class. I'm like, no, she doesn't want you to marry Monty because she wants to be with Monty, you dummy. It was Ugh. so obvious that Vita had wanted Monty the whole time and was just going to do whatever it took to get him, and then when she couldn't have him, she kills him. The 2021 um, lens I also want to put on, we talked about like how women are treated, but also how people of color are treated in this film. So we have like the actress Butterfly McQueen playing, I think her name is Lottie, who is Joan Crawford's maid. First of all, it's very frustrating because she's portrayed as like a black stereotype um, with like this kind of very high pitched voice and she they have her behaving in a childlike kind of way and she isn't very bright and it's 
really, it's offensive. So like what you were saying, TCM actually right now, before a lot of their films are having this discussion, they're doing a discussion series right now about like problematic films and like what we can keep from this film, but also like discussions to have surrounding it. And yeah, this would be a discussion to have surrounding it because things I was noticing was like they're treating this maid like a stereotypical character. It's really offensive and they're not integrating anything, right? So like everyone in Mildred's restaurant is white. The only place Lottie's allowed to work is in the back. The part where Vita is like such a... Ooh, like like reveal number two into Vita's mind. That and just also like Vita, I mean, Vita's racist. She's racist and classist. Like it was both of those. It was like her making a comment about like our maid who is like a black woman is wearing the uniform that you wear to work. I mean, like what Vita is doing is despicable. It's like intentional manipulation of like, I'm not just going to tell you I know what you're doing. I'm going to show you in a really despicable, racist, classist way. What a lonely filming experience it must have been for that actress as well. Completely. Well, and she's an actress. Like, she does not speak this way, you know? Like, to have to put that on, to do your craft, to like get paid as an actor, all of that is really disgusting. I don't know if you watched Hollywood. It makes that world, but then makes a statement of like, this is what could have been if people spoke up. Do you know what I mean? But there's a scene where the Black actress is on set to do her two or three lines as the maid and it just kind of just made me think of this the actress in in Mildred Pierce of like this probably was her day on set it's a stark contrast from like I've talked about this on the show several times so audience you're gonna hear it again but there were directors who this was important to them showing integration on film and showing like people of color in a positive light even if it's a very small thing so like last week we did on the waterfront Ilya Kazan has his own host of problems but that film does have integration in it. It has a positive representation of an African-American character, right? Who advances the plot and who is like a part of this group of men. So it's like, yes, it's a pretty much a sea of white faces, but he is with them and one of them and they work together as a team and a family. And it's like a harmonious relationship. Whereas this, there's a stark contrast. It's like they're they're belittling her. That scene where Joan is like, you announced them too loudly. Like it's very demeaning. Yes, I love these films, but they do have moments like this in them and they need to be discussed. And then we haven't really talked about Joan Crawford. Michael Curtiz, I mentioned, we talked about on White Christmas. His like basic nutshell story is like, he's from Hungary. He had a successful film career there as a director, moved to the States in 1926. Jack Warner recruited him. He did not speak English when he was directing his first films. And he kind of like really understood the human condition. And he is one of my favorite filmmakers. I mean, this guy did Casablanca, The Adventures of Robin Hood. He's all over the place with his genres. Um, Yankee Doodle Dandy, White Christmas. He's He can do just about anything. He's an excellent filmmaker. Um, he brought like certain aspects of German expressionism to the States. And then he was also Jewish. And he, of course, got here before Nazism came to power in Europe. And he, Jack Warner was able to get his mother out into the States. But Aww. his family went to Auschwitz. And I think his sister might have survived. But mm. a lot of his relatives were killed. Ugh. Um, So it's like, thank God we have this man in this movie, but like another example of like what we could have lost. Anyway, so like I just want to bring up his like whole little quick dossier. And then for Joan Crawford, what I learned about her, she's fascinating to me because the essence, like the vibe I get from her is like she is a very ambitious person 
who just wants to be loved but is like never really accepted by people. That's like the Joan Crawford vibe I get. And she was very intimidating. I mean, she has an intimidating power to her and features, which was, it's delightful to hear that her screen test with Anne Blythe was that she was, made me feel welcome yeah. at ease. I was not nervous. I, it was just remarkable. Like I, she was a remarkable woman who I enjoyed working with. And it's just nice to hear that. She's so complicated because it was like, I learned so much about her today. I mean, if you had said, Sarah, what do you know about Joan Crawford before I learned about her? I'd be like, okay, this is what I know. I think that she was an alcoholic, no wire hangers ever, that she had a lot of like feuds with certain people. Like I know she had a feud with Betty Davis. I know she had like issues with certain people on certain sets. She was married to the Pepsi guy. So yeah, that that's pretty much if you're like, what do you know about John Crawford? For me, that's what it is. Everyone's always like, no, why are hangers? But just these stories of, and they were her adopted kids, right? Because she they never were her had... adopted kids. Yeah, she she adopted four children. It was interesting. I found out she couldn't adopt her first kid um, in California because she was single. They wouldn't let you adopt people if you were a single woman. Wasn't there a story that the the birth mother came to the house to get the kid and she just gave it to her because she felt bad? That was right? one of her sons. Yes, I think. Yeah. I read that that happened. But yeah, she ended up adopting four kids. And like, we, well, well, hold on. Before we get to the four kids, I want to do her upbringing because she, so she, no one knows her birth year. No one can find it. That's again, like such a stereotype of like old Hollywood, like no one will have it on my age, but it's like, no, you really don't. Well, and that's why it's so funny. She campaigned so hard for this part because a lot of lead actresses were turning it down because they didn't want it implied that they could potentially have a teenage daughter. They didn't want to like be that age. And Joan Crawford was like, nope, this is my role. And Michael Curtiz was like, I really don't want to give it to you. I would rather give it to all of these other people. And then he was like, oh, fine, give her a screen test. And then he saw it and he was like, okay, yes. Yes, you're Mildred Pierce, sure. Um, actually, he offered it to Betty Davis, and Betty Davis said no. Oh. She turned it down. Her name growing up was Lucille Lesueur, which is like such oh. an interesting name. Her father left when she was really young. She had a stepfather. Her stepfather sexually abused her for several years, um, which is just completely heartbreaking. Um, and I think that probably actually has to do with a lot of things that happened later in her life. Um, she was sexually abused until they sent her off to Catholic school. Eventually they separated, um, but she kind of like stayed at the school, tried to go to college, tried to do some things, didn't really work out. She ends up becoming a dancer and then she's spotted by a Schubert when she's on a vaudeville tour in Detroit. And so she gets to go to New York and, you know, works her way up as a dancer. Um, she ends up in Hollywood. She becomes a body double for Norma Shearer, which I think is just so oh, I interesting. I did not know that. I didn't either. Um, and then her name, Joan Crawford, her name was originally Lucille Lesueur, as I had mentioned. That's her real name. But the Hollywood guys were like, no, no, no. Your last name sounds like Sewer. It sounds kind of like you made it up and like it's a fake name. We're going to do a fan contest. It was like, name the star fan contest. So fans named her. They um, named her Joan Arden, but apparently there already was a Joan Arden. Like that name was claimed. So they went on the second name. Joan Crawford and Joan Crawford didn't like it. She said, I think it sounds like crawfish. And she wanted to be Joanne. And they said, they're like, no, it's going to be Joan. She's like, I love the security that came with my name, hated that my name was Joan Crawford. A great quote I found about her was, no one decided to make Joan Crawford a star. Joan Crawford became a star because Joan Crawford decided to become a star. 
She is ambitious Vita. from the get-go. She's like Mildred and Vita together. Like if Mildred and Vita did have a child, if they were one, she's incredibly ambitious. She's like, no, I'm too good for this stuff. I want to get better parts. She goes out, like she has a studio contract and works in the day and then goes out at night and wins like dancing competitions and stuff so that people will like notice her. Um, and it works. She's cast a lot in silent films in her early career as a flapper. And she's cast a lot as like the the working girl, the working girl that's eventually going to get her man. And she's one of you folks. But at the same time, she was never the girl next door. And she her famous quote was like, if you want the girl next door, go next door. <laughs> she married Douglas Fairbanks Jr., which is like he's a very yeah. handsome man. But that relationship did not last. Um, they eventually get divorced. I feel like her first big, big hit is Grand Hotel. That movie wins Best Picture. That's the, I mean, I've seen her in Grand Hotel. The only movies I've seen her in are like the big ones, like Grand Hotel, The Women, Johnny Guitar, because it's Johnny Guitar. Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. You know, I've seen the big ones. She also marries Franco Tone, who was allegedly physically abusive towards her. Um, but they did get along later in his life, and she was like responsible for his funeral. So who knows? But yeah, she played, like her earlier roles were called like Flappers, Wealthy Women in Distress, Hardworking Women. She was married four times. She was on the box office poison list. Do you remember? Have you heard of that list? Yes. Yeah, yeah. She was on it with Catherine Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And it's so funny. Greta Garbo. You're like, they're not box office poison. You fool who wrote that. So she has like a lull in her career in the 30s. The women gets made and that catapults her back into kind of success. She has a lot of success in film from that point on. And Mildred Pierce really revitalized her career too. Oh, absolutely. It's She's great. And she really campaigned for this role. She worked hard to get this role. She was very ambitious and did what she could to get this part. She was Mildred Pierce. She adopts four children, two of them, Christine, and I think it's Christopher, right? Yeah. Report, like, the abuse they received from her. So it sounds completely disturbing. I mean, if you've – the tell-all book is Mommy Dearest. Um, the movie's actually very entertaining. People can be a lot of things. She herself was abused. So I think, to me, I can logically put together that she – would be potentially abusive because of the way she was abused when she was growing up. Absolutely. But yeah, she was like physically, emotionally abusive with her kids. You had mentioned earlier the piece I never put together, which is that maybe Mildred Pierce affected her behavior. Like she sees what spoiling her kid can do in a script. But yeah, she she has some intense behavior. A lot of like belting her kid to a bed or something and like the stuff with the wire hangers and then not feeding her kid. And then didn't she not leave them anything? Yeah, she cut them out of her will. <laughs> yeah. And then there were rumors, too, that she, like, actually did not want to have kids and just was doing it kind of for publicity. Publicity. I heard that, too. we'll never know. Like, I totally believe what Anne Blythe had said about her on set. And I I totally believe all the things can be possible. And, like, we'll never know what happened. (laughs) Like, is she mommy dearest? Is she not? We don't know. Um, But I'm, like, leaving space for it because if she was, that's – rough that's really difficult and challenging for the people that came after for her kids and so yeah it's like i want to leave space and honor them but like i don't want to drag her name through the mud at the same time if it's not true it's one of those things that like when you respect somebody's work but then you hear about their personal life and behind the scenes you sometimes don't want it to be true because you feel well like taint the work and like you'll never know because also back then there was, yes, tabloids in a way, but there's not the aggressive media that it is now where there's cameras that get everything. Um, also, people now are more empowered to speak up when they're in situations and we believe them. Well, and there were 
different standards like even just how people thought you should raise your kids like we talked about Bing Crosby on this show you know how like in his mind he was like well this is how I was raised like this is what you do as a parent but then we're like "Mm, but that's also abusive I mean even my grandma would joke she goes if the paparazzi was the way they are now like there'd be stuff out there about your grandpa that's probably more on the funny side like he liked to go dig in people's trash cans because he thought it'd be fun in like their nice Brentwood neighborhood. She goes, could you imagine that of like Dennis days digging in a trash? What does this mean? Like you've heard, I think of that era, especially you want to respect the work, but at the same time, you're like, oh man. It's so cool to have such an old Hollywood connection. Can I just say that? Like, that's really special. Oh, it is very special. I mean, that's why I was more upset that like I didn't, start to appreciate it till much older. I'm glad I got the moments I did and the stories, but at the same time, you're like, everyone always says this. I wish I knew when I was younger, you know, at like nine years old, rather than being a crap head and wanting to watch TV. It's like, no, sit with your grandma and talk to her about having dinner with this person, you know, or who they're like, just their neighborhood alone was full of stuff. And then people always ask, cause Dennis day, Doris day, Yes, he got a ton of fan mail for Doris, unrelated. And you were talking about names and changing names. That was such a thing of the era. My grandpa's real name was Owen Patrick McNulty. It was the William Morris that said that's too Irish of a name, Dennis Day. Literally just threw the name out at him. And he's like, okay. Because they were like, that's too Irish. Such a thing of that era. Like, you're too this, you're too that. So change your name, change your look. And it's perfect for him. He looks like Dennis Day. Just not related to Doris Day. Everyone always thought they were married. Also, audience at home, if you do not necessarily know who Dennis Day is, go look him up. First of all, his singing voice is lovely. He was a singer on the Jack Benny show. And then he had his own show. I literally hear him all the time on my radio. Yeah, he had a short-lived and then, yeah, the Jack Benny show. He was kind of a comedic side character and Jack's famous like line delivery was oh dennis and it is really it's not very many people know but obviously if they listen to radio shows and people usually familiar jack benny but it is cool when i do hear dennis day get referenced conan o'brien interview oh man i'm forgetting older actor and they were just talking about jack benny and the guy goes oh dennis and oh. was like, and made the reference. I was like, it's just like Dennis Day. And I was like, what? Like, that's so cool to hear out in the ether, like that he's still, you know, yeah. being discussed by two people I, I greatly admire. It was Conan and, um, gosh, he's, uh, he played the older elf and elf. What's his name? Oh, Bob Newhart. I listened to that interview. Yeah, he mentioned, he went, oh, Dennis, like Dennis. And so that's why I was Bob Newhart. And just hearing that, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Well, and he was comedically talented, but really did genuinely have a beautiful voice. He did Johnny Appleseed, the Disney Johnny Appleseed is him. Uh, he did the singing and he did the voice of Johnny Appleseed and the ghost. And if you look up pictures of Dennis Day, like type in Dennis Day, Johnny Appleseed, you'll see a really cool picture of Disney holding a picture. Like he literally tried to draw him to look like him, which is cool. Not to be confused with Dennis Day, who was a Mouseketeer. So there was a Mouseketeer named Dennis Day as well. We are heading into the double feature portion of this show. That's when I tell you, if you liked this movie, hey, check out this film that gives you similar vibes or might be a good double feature. So for me, I think this would be really great with Stella Dallas, which is like, another mother-daughter, mother sacrificing everything for her daughter tale. Um, So I feel like, and it's Barbara Stanwyck, who um, was the second choice to be Mildred Pierce for this. It went 
Betty Davis, Barbara Stanwyck, and then uh, Olivia de Havilland or Joan Fontaine, which is hilarious because they were sisters who didn't speak. But yeah, none of them wanted to do it. And so Joan Crawford was like, hello, I'm, I'm still here. Remember me? Hello. And she's got her <laughs> Oscar for it. So I think that would be like the number one pick for me. Um, the movies I wrote down that you could watch this with for like a noir effect, um, The Unfaithful, Murder My Sweet, which I actually haven't seen, but I feel like it would be fun to watch with this. Um, Crossfire. Oh, Imitation of Life. Again, there are racial undertones in that film, but it's a great like mother-daughter kind of story where it's like this woman and her maid, who is an African-American woman, they have a very close relationship. Their daughters each prefer the other mother, essentially. And yeah, so I feel like that would be a good, interesting one. That's a very powerful movie. I just recently watched it. Did you do the Douglas Sirk one or the one before the Douglas Sirk one? I don't know that there was two of them. You probably The one the from 50s. the 50s. Yeah. Yeah, the Douglas Sirk one. I mean, I love Douglas Sirk as a filmmaker. I just think he's his movies are so gorgeous. Um, but yeah, it's in Imitation of Life is tricky. And it has like a whole issue of like the one daughter wants to pass for white and... That's like a whole plot point. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, it's mother, mother-daughter relationships. Um, so yeah, do you have any anything that you would want to recommend, or do you have anything that we didn't say that you like would love to share with us? Before the call, we had talked about how you had said in this she's like a politician, but how well spoken she is, and about how she doesn't really talk badly about other people. She doesn't sound like a ninety-two-year-old woman. Yes, you can hear her age, but she did not know when I was calling. She was like immediately, like, oh, yes, great. Like just had almost prepared answers. So I think, one, she's so used to talking about this stuff. So she probably, some things are prepared because I think she does get asked a lot probably about Joan Crawford and what that was like. You know, people probably want to get something out of her that's like, but as you said, she was somebody who defended her and she just sounds like she was, young and busy she was focused on getting her schoolwork done but yeah she's always been a very delightful woman and I always say as weird as it sounds she's so well preserved growing up I always remember her in like the Jackie O type suits just classy and she still is classy and just knowing that elegance that she's carried into this era she has been very outspoken of like my family's first I wanted a lot of kids I wanted an Irish Catholic family. And, um, you know, and I think that is something to admire, especially in this industry, that it's a lot of times you're looked down upon of having kids and families. And well, it sounds to me like she didn't need outward approval so much. So it's like people like Joan Crawford get tripped up because they really desperately want this outward, outward approval, approval from the world. And it comes obviously from inside. And it sounds like she had that. It was like she knew her worth already and where it came from. She was very confident. And I bet it's from probably being so young growing up as a performer in the theater and the professionalism. But she did have a childhood as well, which I think is important that not some of these other stars of that era that were that age necessarily had. I mean, I use Judy Garland as an example of like she didn't have a childhood and so that's where I, my aunt always says, like, I just was very blessed to have the people around me that I did to protect me in a way, but also 
not overprotect. Well, and she had theatrical training too, so I imagine she was very comfortable in this world. So it's like, yeah, she was on Broadway for two years before she made this. Like, this is what I was reading today. <laughs> and then she like went on tour with the show. The show is in LA and she got signed with Universal because of the tour of, like, of Watch on the Rhine. And so she had been on stage for years in a very professional capacity with very like wonderful actors. Right. And that's why I think she wasn't nervous when she met Joan and did her screen test because she said she wasn't nervous at all. It was remarkable. I love this performance and I love it from both of these women. Both of these women, also Eve Arden, who was also nominated. Can't forget about Eve Arden. But the trifecta of them, it's like we've got these three awesome women and then we've got the three terrible men, but everyone here is a good actor. Everyone's bringing it. So yeah, all in all, I enjoyed this movie a lot. And and we were talking earlier the way about like it being a noir, but it's like a lush noir. Like it's got so like Leave Her to Heaven, the way Leave Her to Heaven kind of looks, it has that feeling, that vibe about it, which also Leave Her to Heaven would be a great double feature because there's also a great villain in that who doesn't appear as she seems. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And it is going to be melodramatic at points, but like it's smart, it's witty, it's fun. Like what more could you ask for? You go into it knowing it's going to be that. Kat, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Talking about this movie, for like calling your aunt. Look, it got me to pick up the phone to call her because it's, it's unfortunate that I think we all say this with our families, like you shouldn't need a reason to call family. Mm-hmm. And you gave me a reason to call her and it's like, okay, now like, why haven't I been calling? Just like, it's like, call your mom, call your grandparents. I'm glad that you shared that with us. So thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel very uh, special to be at a finale. You are season two finale. Season two. Talk classic to me. Now you got to wait a couple weeks for the next season, everybody. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for being here. And please tell Anne Blythe that we we love her and we sent her our best wishes. She's amazing. She told me to send it to her to listen to. So no pressure. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening. And we'll see you next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Kat Day. And a special shout out to her great aunt, Anne Blythe. You are a national treasure. Thank you for taking the time to chat with Cat Day. Cat Day will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me. Thanks for listening.